You know what? Praise precedes the victory. As you are giving God praise today, you know what? Your praise is just sending out your faith. That's allowing God to just arrange things in your favor. Happiness is because of your circumstance. Joy is in spite of your circumstances. It's that peace that surpasses understanding. It's crazy joy. It doesn't make sense. And James says, that can be yours as it was my brother. And he learned this looking at his brother, following his brother, seeing his brother. Jesus had joy. Jesus had joy even when he didn't have happiness. There is a force, energy, consciousness, divine thread, I believe, that connects all spiritually to all of us, to something greater than ourselves. Now, if you're living in the space of an open heart, you have a blessed life. I can't make you understand how much Jesus loves you. God has to supernaturally do that by the power of his Holy Spirit. But the primary driver of Christian obedience is the love of God made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That unwavering forgiveness and delight is what should be driving us. For the foundation of the world, God already knew and had ordained in advance. It's why He put you in this particular generation. It's why you're here on planet Earth at exactly this time is because your calling fits to what is going on in your sphere of influence. We are just as busy as we can be, and we think because we're busy, we're effective. But I want you to challenge your schedule for a minute and ask yourself, are you, are you really being effective? Or is your life cluttered with all kinds of stuff that demands you and drains you and taxes you and stops you from being your highest and best self? The one thing we have in this world is we can't control the events, but we can choose what to focus on, we can choose what things mean, and we can choose what to do. Those three choices, those three decisions really control our life. God is love. If we're going to see what, God, what love looks like, we've got to look at God. And of course, Jesus is our example. When he was here on earth, he gave us an example of what God was like. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if I know God is love and Jesus was a direct representation of him, and if I want to walk in love, then I've got to see how Jesus lived. It's in a cross. It's in the worst suffering you can imagine that this God is most present. And not just present, but this God does this God's best work in those moments. Bringing out of that old creation a new creation. Bringing out of that Friday a Sunday. Bringing out of that death a resurrection. with some of the most tweetable tweets on planet Earth. I mean, I tasked uh, Jeff and our media team to put together a video uh, with some very inspiring quotes uh, from a multitude of the voices that are currently popular in our culture. And uh, that video, uh, anything in there, generally speaking, you'd be going, oh man, I could, I could Facebook that, I could tweet that. The, the problem with that video is this, that half the voices in that video 
our voices carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ in incredible and effective ways into the world, and half the voices in that video are some of the most dangerous in our cultural context today. They are carrying either no gospel at all or they're carrying a gospel that is not the gospel and that is a dangerous place to be. And the trouble is that it's very difficult to discern which one is which because all of it sounds really inspiring and all of it sounds really good and all the sound bites you tend to hear, they all sound awesome. And so in the culture in which we live, the reality that we need to be able to walk into the world we live in and be able to discern where the gospel is being preached and where the gospel is not being preached and where the wrong gospel is being preached is absolutely critical. We have entered into the letter of Galatians that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. And from the very second we walked into this letter, we have been confronted with the urgency of knowing the gospel, knowing it in its simplicity, knowing it in its complexity, knowing the theology of the gospel, knowing the narrative of the gospel, understanding the implications of the gospel, understanding what it says about us and what it says about God. Uh, Paul urgently says to the church in Galatia, the gospel matters and you've got to know it well. You've got to know it well. We are confronted with this urgency to uh, make sure that the gospel is informing our lives, that we are embracing the gospel, that we are living the gospel, that it's not just an intellectual reality in our heads, but it is actually shaping the way we live. This urgency in Galatians is immediately presented. You must know the gospel. You must embrace the gospel. And then this urgency of guarding the gospel. You can't just know it and embrace it. You've got to stand for it. You've got to guard it. You've got to discern when it is not present or when what is present is a twisted version of it. The reason that Paul is writing to the church in Galatia is because this message, uh, this, this urgency of knowing the gospel and embracing the gospel and guarding the gospel was very applicable to the people in Galatia. Remember that we've been following Paul through the book of Acts on his journey as he has journeyed his way uh, through uh, the mission that he's called to. Paul ended up in Antioch with Barnabas after he had come to Jesus on the road to Damascus. They were in Antioch and sent out from Antioch on mission to the region of Galatia, specifically a region that is primarily during that time Gentile with some Jewish influence. And Paul and Barnabas traveled through Galatia to uh, Antioch of Poseidon, to Iconium, to Derba to Lystra, and under great hostility, they planted churches and brought the gospel to bear. And we saw the church begin to emerge in Galatia. After traveling through Galatia, Paul and Barnabas traveled back through Galatia, through hostile territory, so that they could disciple those churches and disciple the leaders into understanding and knowing the gospel accurately and properly, because they knew that there would be many fights to come. And then they left Galatia. Paul and Barnabas part ways and Paul goes with Silas on his next mission. And as Paul and Silas go on mission, as Paul continues on missions into the future, at some point on those missions, Paul gets word back from Galatia. And, it's, and this is what he hears. That in Galatia, the churches that knew the gospel, that were guarding the gospel, they have been influenced by teachers who have come in and have added to the gospel and have convinced 
them that this gospel that they're preaching is the more correct gospel. And so the people of Galatia have bought into a false version of the gospel. So this letter that Paul writes to the church in Galatia is extremely applicable. Paul knows exactly what the issues were in Galatia. He knows exactly what this false gospel is because he gets word. And so he writes and confronts it immediately. This was the gospel that says, Jesus is great and all, but you've got to become Jewish before you can have Jesus. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to live under the law. You've got to do the sacrificial system. Otherwise, you can't have our Messiah. Paul had vehemently argued against that as we discovered that the gospel doesn't say that. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we belong to God because of the Spirit of God, not because of an outward sign of circumcision. We live by the law, but not under the law. And we live free from the sacrifice sacrificial system because Jesus is our sacrifice. So Paul is writing to them saying, man, how are you getting this wrong? You got to get this right. Paul's luxury when he was writing to churches in his time was that he generally got word from them that some false teaching has entered in and he knew what that false teaching was and so he could write the letter and be specific about that particular teaching. He writes Galatians about this issue, uh, other letters he writes about other issues when he's writing to other churches. But we live in a very different world than Paul lived in. We don't have that luxury as shepherds to know exactly which false teaching or false gospel is influencing the people we shepherd because we live in a global society. You and I have instant access to all of the inspiring communicators in our cultural context. You can access any one of them at any moment that you see fit by going online and jumping and typing in a name. And there's their messages, there's their books, there's their podcasts, there's their inspiration. And so you don't have one particular teacher coming to your little village and teaching something that is not true. You have hundreds of great communicators, inspiring teachers that are teaching all sorts of stuff that isn't right. And not only do you have instant access, but oftentimes in real time. While we are here in this space, enjoying this moment together, there are people all over the United States and even internationally that are enjoying this moment with us. Hey, peeps in Scotland, this is out to you, man. And you go, what is that? No, I'm telling you, Angie's out in Scotland. She visits regularly with her husband, and they're watching probably last service or this one live right now. We have instant access, and we have access that is in real time. The trouble with the access that we have is that we think that access is real, but it's not. It is an edited version of that access. By the time you download the podcast from somebody, there have been words added that emphasize certain pieces. There's been colors added that makes you feel comfortable while you watch. Music playing in the background. Attorneys have gone through and edited out all the offensive stuff so that you're only hearing the good stuff. Now, we don't go to those kinds of lengths here, but when you go online to the big boys, that's what's happening. So not only are you getting instant access to any one of hundreds of inspiring teachers, but you're getting their edited versions well thought through and packaged so that they are inspiring to you in new and fresh ways, stirring your soul so that you will buy into the content that they are bringing to the table. And the worst of all is that we not only live in, an, in, a, in a global environment where we have instant access, often in real time, edited uh, to be perfect for our inspiring and soul-moving experience, but it is usually in sound bite form. 
When last have you watched a video on Facebook that was longer than three minutes? If you're posting videos longer than three minutes, nobody's commenting on them because nobody's watching them. I learned that lesson. Some of you are going, oh, that's why. Got it now. Three minutes or under. When I scroll down Facebook page, uh, if I see a video, you know, it automatically starts playing. I don't even listen to the audio anymore because you have to click on it then. I just kind of watch the first 12 seconds play out. If I don't like it, I move on. If I like it, I watch 12 more seconds and then I'm done. We don't live in a world of context anymore. We live in a world of sound bites. So you have no context. You can get a single quote or a single sound bite or a single video pulled out of a single space and it can sound good all by itself, but if you have no context for who is quoting that and what they actually believe and what they actually teach, you cannot know whether this little thing you've just heard is actually gospel-centric. Because in of itself it may be, but if you tie it to the context through whom it is being taught and through the other stuff they say, it changes the game completely. But you see, we live in this world. It is instant, it is real time, it is edited, and it is soundbite form with no context. So if ever there has been a message, if ever there has been a book that is coming to us that is applicable to our cultural context even more than it was to Paul's at the time, this is that story. Because to Paul's world, it was very applicable. To our world, it is extremely applicable. Because you and I have to learn to be discerning in what we are experiencing out there beyond simply the outward observation of how popular, how influential, how big, how inspiring, and how awesome are the sound bites that these people produce. We have to dig beyond the sound bite and we have to ask the question, is this somebody that is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, or is it no gospel, or is it a twisted version of the gospel? And if so, what do we do about that? Let's jump into the book of Galatians, and I'll show you where Paul goes now as he's writing to the church in Galatia and sharing with them where we go next. And then we'll see how that speaks into our cultural context. Pay close attention today, because this one matters deeply to the world you and I live in every single day of our lives. We're going to be on page 631, if you're using one of our Bibles, page 631, and we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. So, before we read verse 1 of chapter 2, let's just read the last two verses of chapter 1, and this is what they say. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Paul ends the last piece of this beginning argument in Galatia, uh, to Galatia uh, with this idea that the gospel was not made up by Paul. It is a gospel given to us by God, and one of his arguments is, I should never have come to know the gospel. Uh, Peter couldn't convince me, James couldn't convince me, nobody could convince me. It had to be Jesus on a road to Damascus. And so he says, when people heard that Paul the persecutor has come to Jesus, they knew this must be from God because nobody could have convinced Paul to come to Jesus except Jesus when he showed up on the road to Damascus. So Paul is arguing with the Galatians, the gospel I'm bringing to you, this gospel is not my gospel versus their gospel. There's no such thing. 
This is the gospel given to me by God. And it was confirmed when I went to the other guys that hung out with Jesus and said, this is what Jesus told me. Is that what he told you? And they went, yes, that's what he told us. There is a confirmation on those that had walked with Jesus that this gospel was given to them directly from Jesus, by Jesus. That is what Paul is arguing so that he can make sure you and I know this gospel is not theirs versus mine. It's theirs versus Jesus. And so the real gospel is the one from God. Now look what he does in chapter two in verse one. He's already now said, this is what happened when I first started preaching the gospel. Then he says this, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. That's a lot of words. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, guys, this is how urgently and how seriously I take the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though early in my journey, I had come to Jesus, gone up to Jerusalem, and the gospel that Jesus had given me was confirmed by the guys that Jesus had also given it to who had walked with him. After I went out on mission, after I had been out on mission for 14 years, I went back up to Jerusalem after they had wrestled with the implications of the gospel, I had wrestled with them in a Gentile context, and I went back to Jerusalem to bring what I had discovered that God was revealing to me so that I could make sure it was aligning with what they were discovering that God was revealing to them. Because God was speaking to the apostles at this time, giving them revelation, which has turned out to be our New Testament. So Paul is saying, as I am being spoken to by the Spirit and you are being spoken by the Spirit, when we came back together, let's confirm that the gospel I am hearing from God is the same one you are hearing from God because we have been both given the same task, which is listen to the Spirit so that we can bring to this world the gospel and all of its reality. So he said, I went up to Jerusalem after 14 years and once again sat with the guys. Hey, is is this stuff I'm preaching, uh, is this what God is showing you? And he's saying, I did that because here's the last thing I want. I want to find out as God is revealing to me the gospel that I'm preaching a gospel and then I find out it was the wrong one. Paul's like, I don't want that. So I'm going to take this seriously. Now watch what Paul writes about this. I went up to Jerusalem to continue to confirm that the gospel that I was preaching was the right one. Then he says this, but even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. So what he's saying is when I got up there, I was there with Titus, and I came to the the guys again, and I asked them, okay, I'm still discovering that the gospel is saying we don't have to be circumcised, don't have to live under the law, but just by the law, we don't have to uh, do the sacrificial system, that Gentiles don't have to become Jews before they come to Jesus. Is that that still what, what you're seeing? And and in fact, what Paul's saying is that it was so confirmed by those of influence in Jerusalem who are who? The apostles and the elders. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, Peter, John, these guys that were in Jerusalem. It is confirmed to such a level that they in fact say, Titus over here, who is a Greek and is uncircumcised, we do not require him to be circumcised even to go on mission with you. I love this moment because here it just demonstrates again the incredible reality that the gospel is always the marker that supersedes everything. At a certain point when Paul was with Timothy earlier than this story, 
Timothy was also uncircumcised, and Paul had said to him, you don't need to be circumcised for salvation, but for mission right now, I need you circumcised. Now with Titus, it's the opposite story. For the sake of the gospel, we are going to make sure that you don't step into that because we want to demonstrate that we're not just talking this stuff out, we're living this stuff out. Titus, you know Jesus, that's good enough. We don't need you to have an outward sign of belonging to God. And so Paul says, when I got there, the people in Jerusalem, they didn't even force Titus, who was with me on mission, to step into the things you guys in Galatia are saying, you gotta do if you're gonna know Jesus. The gospel I am preaching is the gospel, and it is the only gospel. And then he says this, yet, verse four, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul's saying, listen, even on the inside of the camp with the influential players in Jerusalem that were part of the church, even there, though the influencers that were the elders and the apostles were confirming the gospel, many that I talked with ended up trying to bring in these other components to the gospel. They were on our, in in our turf, they were uh, quote unquote uh, church leaders at this time kind of going, Ah, we disagree. This can't be so. You got to do this. And Paul said, whenever an influential person on the inside who had snuck in to come and sniff out our freedom and rob us of it, we paid no heed to them. We did not submit to their teaching and we did not listen to them. Not for one moment, he says. We sniffed them out and we did not listen to what they had to say. Because, why, Paul says, not only would that be dangerous for our souls, but we are preserving the gospel for you all. Paul's saying, when we pay attention to those who are preaching a twisted version of the gospel, a gospel that has additions to it or subtractions from it, we are not only doing damage to ourselves, but we are doing damage to all those who watch us follow Jesus because they will believe the things we believe. And Paul says to preserve the purity of the gospel for you, we paid no heed to those who were adding or subtracting from the gospel. Now he goes on and he says this. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. What is Paul saying here? Paul is presenting an argument here beautifully before us. You're going to see him do this back and forth now. He is, he is among influential people. You with me? He's in Jerusalem among influential people. And he's saying, I'm here among the influential people to bring the gospel Jesus gave me and to confirm that gospel with them so that you can be certain that the gospel I carry is from God. Paul is not in Jerusalem to make sure that he's not somehow missing the boat totally. He's in Jerusalem to confirm with the guys that walked with Jesus that the gospel he has is the real one because they'll have the real one too. It's almost as though Paul is saying, I knew that guys that had been with Jesus would have the real gospel, so I'm coming to them with my real gospel, and I promise you when we compare notes, it's going to be identical. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, when I did that, there were other influential people that didn't have the real gospel, and guess what I did with them? Smiled and waved. Bye-bye. I don't pay any attention to you. I give you no space in my head because you don't carry the gospel. 
Now he's gonna go back to the influential people that do know the gospel and, says, and say to them, now here's what these guys did. The guys that actually had the gospel, when I gave them the gospel Jesus gave me, they added nothing to my gospel. Do you see what Paul's saying here? When I came to the influential people, and then Paul says, by the way, side note, I don't really give a rip who's influential. It's not like I'm insecure and I need important people to tell me I got the right gospel. I just recognize that in the church, God has set up a structure of leadership so that we are not lone rangers, so that there is confirmation that God is revealing and revealing. And when we come together, we go, yes, this is from Jesus because it is coming from both sides. But Paul's saying, I'm not here because I need uh, influential people to make me influential. I don't really give a rip that they're influential, but I'm here for your sake so that you'd know that important people that knew Jesus have the same gospel I do. They didn't make it up, I didn't make it up. He says, these influential people, when I laid out the gospel, they added nothing to it. They said, Paul, the gospel you have, that's the gospel. We don't need to change it, shape it, add to it, because it is right. In fact, he goes on to show us how this played out. On the contrary, he says, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. He's saying there were people that actually were with Peter when he went to the Jews and some of those same people worked on my team when we went to the Gentiles. He's showing a unity. He's saying there was no differentiation between the two callings. In fact, when I went and I said to them, I'm carrying the gospel to the Gentiles, and so this context matters, they said, sweet. When they found out Paul was called to the Gentiles with the gospel, they were equally as excited as when they found out that Peter was called to the Jews with the gospel. In fact, people that worked with Peter also worked with Paul at different times. Now look what he says. This is how they responded when they found out that Paul was carrying the gospel to the Gentiles, and specifically this gospel. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I love that last sentence because here's what he's saying happened. I brought the gospel to Peter and James and John. These are pillars of the faith. They walked with Jesus, right? And the gospel I brought to them, they added nothing to it. They said, yep, that's the one Jesus gave us. That's the one he must have given you. But they did add one small pointer, a challenge, not to change the gospel, but just to make sure we had it right. They said, as you go and carry the gospel, don't just make it a verbal deal, care for the poor. Why? Because the gospel calls us to not only be verbal deliverers of the gospel, but demonstrators of the gospel by being redemptive in the people that we engage with. So they said to Paul, you got the right gospel, just make sure you don't only preach it, make sure you live it. And Paul said, well, we were already eager to do that. So they didn't add anything to the gospel. They simply sent me out with the gospel to live the gospel and preach the gospel. Now Paul is about to do something fascinating. So buckle up, right? He's just told us on the inside, there were influential people. Those that were influential with Jesus confirmed the gospel. Those that were not influential with Jesus, they try to rob the gospel. I paid attention to these guys. I paid no attention to these guys. These guys I opposed. Then he said, Peter, James, and John, they sent me out confirming the gospel to the Gentiles. Now he's going to do something to remind us 
that it is not influential people that determine the right gospel. It's the people that have the right gospel that should be influential. Do you catch the difference? Watch what he's going to do. Now he's going to talk about Peter. But, verse 11, when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What an odd sentence to write. Don't you find that odd? Sentence before it. Peter confirmed the gospel I was carrying and sent me out with the right hand of fellowship. But then when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Don't you find that odd? What was Peter condemned in? Well, let's take a look. Paul actually tells us. For before certain men came from James, that's from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was, here it is, not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before all of them, or before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? See, here's what's happening here. I love this little section. So Peter comes up to Antioch to hang out with Paul and Barnabas and the, the church in Antioch. And the church is a mix of Gentiles and Jews, right? So Peter's there. He's hanging out with the Gentiles. He's eating their food. He's partying along with Paul, having great discussions about the gospel. He confirms the gospel. And then some guys come up from Jerusalem, sent from James. And suddenly the Jews in Antioch get all afraid that the people from Jerusalem are going to think they're unruly Jews hanging out with the unclean Gentiles. And so they separate themselves from the Gentiles and go kosher for a little while, right? <laughs> in the house. And, like, and we don't really hang with those guys. I mean, they're part of the church and all, but we're not sure. And so Peter does it. And because Peter does it, and because Peter is an influential leader in the church, some of the other Jewish guys that may not have done it do it with Peter. Even Barnabas goes and hangs with Peter, and the discussion in the house starts kind of revolving around the idea that we don't really hang with the Gentile guys. Paul gets word of this. I mean, I can picture this in my head. Paul hears from somebody. The, the, Peter and the guys are in the other house doing kosher stuff, and they're talking about how they don't hang out with these guys. And I can see Paul get out of his chair and stomp across the road. Boom, 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 boom. Because here's the deal. The passage does not say, uh, Paul quietly calls Peter into a corner somewhere late at night and says, Peter, I want to humbly submit something to you. I know that you're Peter, the apostle, the great leader of the church. So please, if this offends in any way, just ignore it. I just want to lay this maybe a challenge for you, you know? Did you hear that in the passage? I didn't hear that in the passage. That's what I heard in the passage. I walked up to Peter and I got in his face. See, that's Paul. Boom, 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 across the road, dust behind him, slams the door open. Where's Pete? There he is. Get over here. I, what on earth is this? Do you guys see what you're doing here? Unbelievable. Pete, of all the people that I would have expected something different, this is not the gospel. I mean, you're the one that sat in Jerusalem with me and confirmed this gospel. Oh no, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to eat. They don't have to sacrifice. And now you're in this room calling all your little Jewish friends around you? Let's not hang with the Gentiles. You are making my people feel like second-rate citizens. This is not the gospel. And I oppose you. See, Paul did this, and it says he did it publicly. He said it did it in front of all the other guys. I can see Pete like, is this really happening? <laughs> yes, it's really happening. See, I love what Paul says here. Paul is speaking to the Gentile church. I mean, I mean to, the, to the Galatian church, and he's saying, guys, listen. 
influential people in our midst are very important because God set up leadership and, 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 and we all have opportunities to be influential in somebody's life. So there's always that, but listen. I want you to know that the gospel I carry was confirmed by the right people, but even when those right people do not live in a gospel-centric way, I guard the gospel, not Peter. I guard the gospel, not Jerusalem. I guard the gospel, not any man. And if any man is not preaching the gospel, or any woman is not preaching the gospel, or any man is not living the gospel, or any man is not preaching the gospel, then I oppose them until they repent because I guard the gospel. What an incredibly important message this is. So Paul writes to the church in Galatia and says, you gotta know the gospel. You gotta know it in its details, in its, in its theology, in its narrative, in, in, in its implications, so that when somebody comes and foolishly either preaches a wrong gospel or lives outside of the gospel, then you guard the gospel. This is our call, because when you guard the gospel, not only do you guard your own soul, but you guard the souls of those who are watching you. We don't get to mess with this. Paul says to the church in Galatia, I am disappointed that so quickly you have bought into a gospel that isn't real, because you have allowed yourself not to have the courage in your cultural context to stand up for what the gospel says is right, because you want to be careful. Come on. This is the message to the church in Galatia. What is the message to us? I told you this one's more applicable to us than even to the church in Galatia. Why? Because of where we live. Paul is speaking through the corridors of time by the power of the Holy Spirit to you and I in our cultural context and saying, guys, I I need you to pay attention. He starts off, same as with the Galatians, reminding us that this gospel matters a great deal. It should matter to you. Does the gospel matter more to you than your relationships, your resources, your circumstances, the offenses you might have to create on its behalf? Does it matter more to you than the culture around you, than your workplace? Does the gospel matter more to you? I would argue that for most of us, including myself, the gospel often takes a second chair to whatever moment we're in and whatever experience we're in. I don't want to mention anything here that might offend that person. Yeah, I, I get it. It's not always comfortable when the gospel is clearly saying, that, that's, that's not me. This person is not preaching the gospel. And Jesus is going, that's not me. That's not my story. That's not the gospel. And we need to step in. But Paul writes to the church in Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I love the wording he uses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3. For I delivered to you of first importance. Do you hear that? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he goes on to write about Jesus appearing to others. What is Paul saying? Of first importance is the gospel, and if the gospel is of first importance, then you ought to know the gospel, ought you not? And the gospel in its simplicity is this. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead to rescue us from our sins because Jesus was God in the flesh. That is the simplicity of the gospel, but it's not good enough if that's all you know. Because most people that are twisting the gospel are not twisting the simplicity of the gospel. 
Most people that are twisting the gospel are not twisting Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again for your sins. In fact, the very Jewish people teaching the Galatians in Galatia were not twisting that part of the gospel. They said, yep, that's Jesus. Yep, he came. Yep, he died. Yep, he rose again for you. You just can't have him until you get circumcised. See, and, and, and so the problem is if all we know is the simplicity of the gospel, then you will never know when the gospel is being twisted because the people that twist the gospel, they twist it in the complexities of the gospel. They twist the implications of the gospel. They twist what the gospel says about God or what it says about us or what it says about how God relates to us or how we relate to God. Uh, they twist what needs to be added to the complexities of the gospel or subtracted. Do you know the theology of the gospel? Do you know the narrative of the gospel? Do you know the implications of the gospel enough so that you can discern when someone is twisting those things about the gospel? Paul says to us, through the book of Galatians, if you don't know the gospel well, then you better go learn. And just like, just like Paul, you learn by going to those who Spirit of God chose to be influential, who walked with him. And where do we meet up with those who walked with Jesus? Right here. They're in this book. They wrote their stories. They wrote their experiences. They wrote their wrestles. They've already done the work for us with the Spirit of God, but we spend so little time studying this because we just want to hang in sound bites. And because of that, we are an undiscerning people group. And Paul is writing us saying, you are, you are treading on dangerous territory. We must take the gospel seriously. Second, Paul is saying to us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, not only must you take the gospel seriously, but you must hold yourself to the gospel. If it's that serious to you, then hold yourself to the gospel. We must learn to say, what does it mean that I hold myself to the gospel? You and I do not hold ourselves to the gospel well. Because any time our culture tells us, you, you deserve happiness, you deserve comfort, you deserve convenience, and if anything is making you unhappy, uncomfortable, inconvenient, abandon it as fast as you can. We abandon our relationships, our commitments, our resources we hold on for ourselves, and our time we spend for what will make us happier or what will give us the most in the future. And rarely do we measure our lives against what the gospel asks of us. And I want to tell you, Paul is saying, you've got to have the gospel actually hold you accountable to life. You can't say the gospel matters to you if, if you're not holding yourself to the gospel all the time. And that's not just your actions, but your words. How often do you go back into this place to make sure that what you're telling people or what quotes you're laying out for them or what stuff you're reading, whether it aligns with the gospel of Jesus Christ? You and I listen to lots of inspiring people with inspiring voices. Do we align it against this? Have you recently said, when, I, when I'm saying something, am I sure that what I'm saying aligns with the gospel? You know how many, you know how many times we say stuff that this is not aligned with the gospel because we're speaking naively? And Paul is saying, you gotta hold yourself to the gospel. You gotta hold yourself to the gospel. It's gotta matter to you. You gotta know it well, and then you gotta hold yourself to it. Live your life and your relationships and in your, with your resources and in your time and circumstances in a manner that demonstrates that you hold the gospel higher than you do your own rights and your own entitlements. How often in relationships, whether parent-child relationships, whether spousal relationships, whether friendships, when it gets a little uncomfortable, a little hard, we demand that somebody else changes. And if they don't, we abandon. 
How many of us in our parent relationships, we look to farm our kids out as quickly and often as possible to other people to lead them spiritually because it takes too much time for us to do it. We go, Joel, Kenny, Brittany, would you please take care of this? Kid's a little crazy. I mean, we all do it, and the gospel demands of us that we hold ourselves to what we are called to. This is difficult, but we need to do it. But it doesn't end there. Paul's not done. See, Paul says you gotta, you gotta know the gospel well because it matters. You gotta hold yourself to the gospel because it matters. But then you gotta hold your leaders to the gospel too. You get to hold your leaders to the gospel. Did you hear him all over this passage? If the influencers around me came and aligned with the gospel I had, then they were part of the confirmation that this was the real gospel. But if the influencers around me did not align with this gospel, I gave them no space in my head. I didn't give them space. I didn't submit to their teachings. I didn't listen to them. And I did it to preserve the gospel for you, Paul says. We need to hold our leaders and our teachers and our influencers to the gospel. That's what we need to do. Where does that begin? That begins right here at Mosaic, if this is what you call home. The second I stepped onto this stage and said to you, I'm here to teach you the word of God, I have submitted myself to being held to the gospel by you. And you ought to hold me to the gospel. Any other person that walks onto this stage to teach, you ought to hold them to the gospel. If they are preaching a message or they are saying things that you study here and it does not align with the gospel, you ought to come and boldly, like Paul, uh, get in my face and go, hey, can I just tell you what you're preaching is not the gospel. You have added to it. You have subtracted from it. You have centralized something that was never meant to be centralized. You've made it what it should not have been. And challenge me, show me, prove to me so that I would repent. You also need to watch my life because my life matters to the gospel, to the glory of Jesus. And if you see me living a life that is not gospel-centric, if you see me making decisions that is not gospel-centric, you ought to call me on it or any other leader that is in this church. If you go to the staff that we get to lead here and you talk to the staff and they say, man, Renault, when he's out here, he, he, he uses and abuses us. He, the fruit of the Spirit is not present here. We don't experience him like you guys do on the stage. Oh, he's so nice on the stage, you should come here on a Wednesday. <laughs> and if that's what you're hearing, then that's a problem. Then I'm not living by the gospel and you ought to hold me to that. You guys need to go beyond weekends. And you guys need to ask yourselves, are the leaders of influence at our church preaching the gospel? And are they living the gospel? And if they're not, we need to stand up. Because you do me no good if you don't, and you do this church no good if you don't, and you do the gospel no good if you don't, and you do the glory of God no good if you don't. We need to stand. But second of all, we, we don't have the luxury in our context to only be concerned about what happens in the walls of this church because we live in a global context. So we must also hold the leaders to those movements that we are part of to the gospel. We must hold them to the gospel. If we associate with a movement outside of the church, then we need to associate and hold the, the gospel to those leaders. M Mosaic Church uh, is part of a movement called Acts 29. And I loved what I saw recently in the movement of Acts 29. Acts 29 is a church planting movement that uh, resonates with our mission and our uh, philosophy and our doctrine. And so we were like, man, that is awesome. We want to be part of a movement that's planting churches. Acts 29 was founded by a man named Mark Driscoll out of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. 
Mark Driscoll founded the organization out of a vision God gave him in the church. He funded for the first few years uh, with lots of generosity this organization through the church he got to pastor and through his own uh, generosity and this organization was built. Mark Driscoll is a man that preaches the gospel well and his content is awesome. So like Peter, he confirms the gospel in his teaching. And so we were excited about that. But Mark has an abrasive personality, okay? He's from Seattle, it's a riot society. In Seattle, Mark used to say, I'm a riot evangelist. I go out, I offend a bunch of people, they come for the fight, then I preach the gospel and they come to Jesus. And I used to say, that works great in Seattle, but we're in Florida, we are a friendship evangelist society, we are Disney people. We don't like to offend. When we offend, nobody comes, they all walk away, you can't preach the gospel. So we become friends, we hang out for coffee, then we preach the gospel. So there's two different worlds. The problem is that in Mark's local context, that worked, but when he was a national leader of a movement like Acts 29, that was a national display, and so his words and his teachings, though the content was sound, the way that he did it was offensive, and it became a problem for Acts 29. People didn't want to be part of it because crazy uh, Mark Driscoll's in 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 the helm, and so Mark realized that his personality was a detriment to the reality of the movement from a gospel perspective. So he handed the movement over to Matt Chandler. Said, you be the president. I, I'm not gonna be the front face anymore because I'm, I'm not doing good for this from a gospel perspective. Well, Matt Chandler took over with some other people. Mark was still very influential in the movement. And then as time went on, we found out that Mark's abrasive personality was also causing havoc within his church. Lots of the staff he led uh, felt abused and used by the way that he functioned. That is not gospel-centric. Mark's content was still fantastic, but his conduct was not. And so we started watching that and going, this is not gospel. This is not gospel. Then we found out that Mark, uh, as he became more of a celebrity, he took some missteps in the way that he handled that celebrity status, the way he handled his books, things that he did to try to get books on lists that they didn't belong on so he could manipulate the system. And we all went, that's not gospel-centric. Your content is still gospel, but your conduct is not. And so I watched the movement we're a part of do something that I was so proud of. They went to the founder of the movement who had funded the movement from the beginning and they said to him, as long as your conduct is not gospel-centric, then we cannot have you part of this movement. And they asked him to step out with his church. I know the guys that did that. They wept over that decision, and I mean that sincerely. But despite weeping, they did what was right. When your leaders are not living the gospel, then like Paul opposed Peter, you oppose them until they repent. And Acts 29 stood in opposition to Mark and said, until we see repentance, you are no longer part of this movement. It was hurtful, it was difficult, it was right. Now we don't pull his content from everything because his content is gospel-centric, but his conduct removes him from the story until such a time that he stops acting hypocritically. This is what we must do. If we're gonna be in this guarding the gospel, we must stand up against our strongest leaders if they are not living the gospel in conduct, even if their content is sound. But we have not got the luxury that we can stop there. We live in a global society and thousands of voices are accessible every day. So we must guard the gospel, not just here in our church setting, not just in the movement, but we must guard the gospel in the larger context of worlds we're not even part of. We do not have the luxury to sit around and say, I've got nothing to do with that world, so I'm just gonna let those guys play the way they play. 
If there are people teaching a gospel that's twisted, we must take a stand on that. And, and the stand must be one of two ways. Either if we have the space to confront, like Acts 29 had with Mark, we must confront. If we don't have that space because we have nothing to do with those people, they're just a face on the internet for us, a podcast we listen to, then we must do what Paul did with the influential leaders in Jerusalem that were bringing a falseness to the gospel. He said, I paid no attention to them. I gave them no space in my head. I did not submit to their teachings. I said, no, you don't get to speak to me. And we must do that. There are, in our cultural context, some very popular gospels floating around. And they are not true gospels. They are dangerous gospels. And we must know what they are, and we must not live in their spaces. Because when we do, not only is that damaging to us because we hear things that are not gospel-centric, but it is damaging to those who are watching us because if we, if we on our social media spaces, we throw sound bites around from these people, our people are going to think that we endorse everything they say and they're going to read their books and they're going to find false gospels and we're not going to know it because they're not going to tell us and we're going to have done great damage to those who are watching us. What are these false gospels? Well, there's so many of them it would take me an hour, but there are a few that are specifically popular in our context. The most popular of the false gospels is the prosperity gospel. Makes sense, doesn't it? What do Americans want to hear? That not only is America for you to make you wealthy and happy and healthy, but God is for you in that as well. You thought it was good before you knew God, it gets better now because God exists for your well-being and he is here to make you happy, comfortable, convenient, and perfect. This is the prosperity gospel. Uh, Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia, you know, I mean, it's not like, but, um, but Wikipedia, I will give you this. Stuff that's on Wikipedia that, that, is, that is false, they pull it quick. I mean, so they, they're, pr they're pretty good about constantly watching. So when it's on Wikipedia, this means that there's been a committee of secular people that have vetted this and kind of gone, yeah, this is legitimate, we'll leave it on there. So Wikipedia, this is not just Renault or Mosaic Church bashing the prosperity gospel, right? Or naming names. Wikipedia, here's what it says. The prosperity gospel is a Christian religious doctrine that financial blessing is the will of God for Christians and that faith, positive speech, and donations to Christian ministries will always increase one's material wealth. Based on non-traditional interpretations of the Bible, often with emphasis on the book of Malachi, the doctrine views the Bible as a contract between God and humans. If humans have faith in God, he will deliver his promises of security and prosperity to humans. Confessing these promises to be true is perceived as an act of faith which God will honor with his prosperity that he'll bring to you. The doctrine emphasizes the importance of personal empowerment, proposing that it is God's will for his people to be happy. The atonement, that is the reconciliation with God, the work of Jesus, is interpreted to include the alleviation of sickness and poverty, which are viewed as curses to, a broken, to the broken by faith. This is believed to be achieved through visualization and positive confession and is always taught in mechanical and contractual terms. If you believe it, if you say it, if you speak it, if you run with it, it will be yours. This is the prosperity gospel. It is a gospel that has been added to with an American culturalism that has twisted it so deeply and badly that it is no longer the gospel at all. Buckle up. 
I'm about to offend you. <laughs> These are the names that are associated with the prosperity gospel deeply. They are on Wikipedia, okay? They're on Wikipedia. <laughs> They're also on my list, may I add? Because I looked, every name I'm about to mention I have researched, and the prosperity gospel is all over these people, okay? Joel Olstein. Yeah. If you like Joel Olstein on Facebook and you quote his stuff, I get it, he's a happy man, and his stuff is inspiring, but it is twisted in its gospel, and, and you are doing damage to yourself and to others. When, when we talk about Oprah or Ellen or Tony Robbins, they don't claim to carry any gospel. Yeah, be very careful what you listen to with those people. But Ellen's funny. I like her. She's, she's happy. And you know, Tony has some great inspirational stuff to say, but they're not claiming to carry the gospel. So be careful with them, but we don't get to call them out because they're not claiming to carry the gospel. But we get to call these guys out because they're claiming to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're not. Joel Olstein, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Hagen, Benny Hinn, Eddie Long, Paula White, Wikipedia. They're also on my list. Here, uh, 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 Joseph Prince. He's not on Wikipedia. He's too new. He will be soon. <laughs> These people are carrying a prosperity gospel. They're telling you that God is in it for you and that if you do the right thing, then he will bless you with wealth and happiness and convenience and comfort, and that's appropriate. Your Learjet is waiting. I can quote several of them saying that. Some that are a little, little more difficult. They are prosperity gospel without a doubt, but they say a lot of good stuff as well. But they're difficult, but they are prosperity gospel. There's no way around it. Joyce Myers. Yep, I just offended three quarters of you. Got it. You've read her books. You love her stuff. I get it. She is prosperity theology through and through. Lots of other theology that's bad. T.D. Jakes. I've met T.D. Jakes. His story's amazing. I've heard Joyce Meyer's story, it's amazing. These people have overcome great things. Their stories are inspiring. I know that their hearts uh, are drawn to this stuff, but listen, it doesn't matter. Here's what Paul would say. Just because they're inspiring, just because they have great stories, just because it seems like they have powerful ministries, you don't get to say I hold them to those things. You get to say I hold them to the gospel. They are not preaching the gospel in its pure form. They are twisting it. So you need to be aware of that and you need to be careful with that. I'm not telling you to go boycott them. That's not how we do it. I hate the space where churches are critical constantly and if you've been here 11 years with us, you know this is probably a first for you. You're kind of going, wow, this has never happened before. Yeah, well, the Spirit of God has a way of telling me what to do and even though I'm afraid, I do it. We don't want to be a critical church who points out every little flaw out there and says they're not like us, we hate them. Boycott them. We want to be a church that guards the gospel. And when we discover someone is not guarding the gospel, we want to go, guys, you got to watch in this world. These people, prosperity gospel, understand they are dangerous in the way that they present the gospel. And what they're giving us is twisted. And we have to be aware of that. Please be careful. Do not throw the stuff in soundbite form all over the space. And when given the opportunity, gently, lovingly, speak into the people you know just to say, hey, be careful with this. This is our calling. There's another gospel that's very popular. It's called the unity gospel. It's found really in all sorts of spaces, but mostly in the emergent church movement led by two primary voices, although there's many more. The primary voices are Rob Bell and Brian McLaren. 
I've read much of Rob Bell's stuff and Brian McLaren's stuff. They are two of the most inspirational and thought-provoking communicators I know, but they are not preaching the gospel accurately. They are preaching a gospel that is a unity gospel that says, really God is out to rescue everyone regardless of where you're at and he'll work it out in you no matter what. So hey, you know, just, just live. And that's a simplified version. But Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, the Emergent Church Movement, these people, it's not their theology that I'm so concerned about. It's the doctrine of the gospel they run with, their theology of the gospel. There's lots of people that have differing theology from us that I do mission with, embrace, and would never be on a stage doing this with because their gospel is sound, their theology I don't totally agree with. But this is gospel theology. It changes the gospel. We don't get to play with that. There is a gospel called the poverty gospel. Okay, this is what it says. If you're not suffering, then you are not faithful. If you drive a sports car, you're evil. If you live in a big house, how could you? You're a Christian. Do you have money? That's very bad. Give it away immediately. This is a gospel out there. Listen, the prosperity gospel, in reaction to that, we don't jump to the poverty gospel. I'm not saying that if you have a nice car or a nice house or have money that that makes you bad. I hope you handle it well in a biblical manner, but some of us have lots and some of us don't. That's okay. God uses that appropriately. But here's the deal. The poverty gospel is dangerous. Now, why don't you know much about the poverty gospel? Not super popular. (laughs) Just saying. You want to search for a book on the poverty gospel? It's not on the front shelf. It's not even on the back shelf. You have to order it on Amazon.com. So this one is a little more difficult because uh, it's, it's not one that's popular. But let me tell you why I'm bringing it up in our context. Because there are in our context some people writing some things that are sound and good. But if you're not careful, you might interpret those things as a poverty gospel. I love uh, the book Radical, for example. I, I, I love it. I think it's sound. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But some people that have read that book walk away from that book feeling this guiltness that says, I have too much, I gotta get rid of it all because I gotta go be faithful. And I wanna tell you that's a, that's a sneaking in of a poverty gospel saying, you're not faithful unless you give it all away and suffer for Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel is full of prosperity and full of suffering. It's not one or the other. There is a gospel called the legalistic gospel. Now this one you won't read about because nobody's interested. But you may have grown up in this world. The churches that say to you, Jesus plus behavior gets you saved. If you do not wear these things, you might go to hell. If you do not say these things, you might go to hell. If you act this way, you might go to hell. If you tell this to your parents, you might go to hell. In fact, there's so many things that might get you into hell. I'm glad you have Jesus, but that's not enough. You gotta behave. That's a legalistic gospel. That is a false gospel. And if you've grown up in that world, then feel free to begin to free yourself from it. You'll know it because every time you misbehave, you'll feel super guilty. Oh, maybe God hates me now. You know Jesus. God loves you. You are his beloved. So be careful with these gospels. They are more, many more of them. But these are the most popular. If I have offended you today, then I pray this for you that instead of being offended that you would be challenged, go and seek out the names I just laid out. If you go, you, you, you did not touch her. Go seek out and see if I'm right. Listen, listen to me, please. Do I think that Joel Olstein and Joyce Myers and T.D. Jakes and others have, have done things that have brought people to Jesus? Yes, absolutely. Maybe you're one of them. Have you maybe read one of their books and it revolutionized the way you think about uh, the way you handle life? Yes, I'm sure that happened. 
I'm sure that great things have been done through these people by God's grace, but that does not excuse the gospel they preach. And so if they have been influential in your life, I'm grateful that God used even them to do that. But do not let that be a measure as to whether you're gonna buy into their gospel. Because what Paul is telling the Galatians and us is just because someone's influential, inspiring, effective in ministry, or God uses them in your life to do wonderful things, it does not mean that you get to excuse the gospel in them. You don't hold them to those things, you hold them to the gospel. And we must do the same. Otherwise, all we're doing is reading about Paul and saying, oh, that's nice, but not actually living it. So may we be a church, listen now, that takes seriously the gospel because it matters, that we make it of first importance, that we rise it above all other things that are taught and measure things by it. That means we must know the gospel in its theology, in its narrative, and in its implications. And if you don't, then you ought to. Two, let's be a people that hold ourselves to the gospel before we hold anyone else to it. Let us not be judgmental and horrid people that just look outward and go, let's look right here first and go, well, what's going on here? And when we've got this right, then let us stand in a culture that tells us be tolerant. Let us stand for the gospel and say, if someone is either preaching a false gospel or living with conduct that is not gospel-centric, then we will not follow them. We will not follow them because we are not following them to Jesus. We are following them somewhere else and we're not gonna do that. Let us be that place and let us gently, lovingly, firmly get in the face of the gospels that are false publicly and say, you don't get to do this. You don't get to do this. Let's pray. God, thank you for this incredible letter that you inspired Paul to write to the church in Galatia that reminds us of the urgency of taking seriously the gospel, of knowing it deeply in its theology, in its narrative, in its implications, and in its simplicity, and then holding ourselves to it and guarding it with our lives and our words and our actions, coming back to your word regularly to test and approve that we are living our lives according to your word. And then to hold our leaders to it, starting right here in Mosaic, and then in our networks like Acts 29, and then in our global environment on social media. May we hold our leaders and our influencers to the gospel. And if they are preaching a gospel, whether it be prosperity or poverty or legalistic or unity or anything else for that matter, that we would stand in that space and say, I will not give you space in my head. I will not listen and submit myself to you. I will not make you someone that I vet on my social media. May we take stands, not because we hate those people, but because we love the gospel and we want to keep it pure. Give us courage to stand firmly in the spaces you've called us to so that we would be light in the darkness. And for those people that preach false gospels, God, for people like Joel Olstein and Joyce Myers and T.D. Jakes and those guys, I pray for them. God, I, I, I know for some of them, their hearts are so good, they desire to be to be good and to do good, but they have a skewed vision. They are not paying attention to the gospel. And so they are missing the boat. Would you bring clarity to them? 
Would you be gracious to them? Would you lead them into spaces of rightness so that they might use their influence and their voice and their inspirational personalities to actually bring the gospel to us? God, make it so in their lives. For Rob Bell and Brian McLaren and all those in poverty gospel or legalistic gospel, would you, would you do the same? And God, where we are flawed in our thinking of the gospel, would you do the same? We want to get it right more and more. Show us where we are wrong, bring clarity so that we might walk in the true nature of the gospel and our actions and our words. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.